don't know about you, but um, I have just, I was just really, really, really ready. I'm still really ready done to be done with all the electioneering that's going on in the news, right? The, the election is way back in a rearview mirror, and it's still going on constantly. And, and, um, but I was thinking about this as I was preparing for today. I was thinking about when I was um, back during the late, most recent election, I was watching the Iowa caucuses, of, of all things. And here's this news reporter, and he's doing whatever they do with these things. And... Um, Behind there is this great big sign that says change. Change, right? And it kind of made me chuckle. I mean, because I think, you know, the, the, here's what the, the, the network reporter said, you know, you know, the word behind me sums up what this nation is looking for, right? Okay, and it's like, listen, it doesn't matter who is in power or when the election is occurring. The campaign strategy of the people who are not in power is we want change, Right? doesn't matter which party. The Republicans don't own that word. The, the Democrats don't own that word. The, nobody owns, everybody wants change if they're not the ones that are presently in power. Would you agree with me? And I, I just think, you know, I just kind of chuckled because it's kind of like the same campaign gets run over and over and over. And, and um, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. That's not where this is going, so relax. Take a deep breath. Oh man, this is going to be hard today. Okay, if you're going to hold your breath the whole time, this is going to be a blue crowd. Okay, so anyway, um, I, so I saw that and I chuckled about it and I, and I thought about what would happen if change actually happened? How, what, would, you know, what if change actually happened and you didn't know it? There's a, there's a story from 1912. Thomas Woodrow Wilson goes elected president. This is kind of a, you might have heard this story before, but right after he got elected, he, you know, he had all these requests from all these towns. Even though it wasn't like today, no quick internet, no quick news and all that kind of stuff, um, there were, all these towns wanted the president to come to their town, you know, come and visit us. And, and he pretty much turned down most of the, the places to go visit, except he did go to, decided to go to Stanton, his, his hometown where he was born in Virginia. And, uh, and while he was there, he decided he would visit his, his elderly aunt, who he had not really seen since his childhood. He had kind of grown up and moved away. And, and it was his mother's sister, and she was very, very elderly, very, very hard of hearing. And um, he went in, and he, he, he says to her, you know, he goes in and says hi. And she says, well, she called him Tommy, because th- that was what he was called, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. And, well, Tommy, what's, what are you doing now? And his comment to her was, um, well, I've been elected president. And her response was, president of what? <laughs> and it's hard to imagine today somebody not knowing who would have been elected president of our country. And a change had ha- happened, and it was pretty close to home here for her. You know, oh, come on, don't be foolish. You know, but no, that's, you know, it, that's cute, and it's an innocent story. But what if the change was involving a warfare? or a battle that was going on around us? What if that kind of change is going on and you didn't know it? You didn't know who your enemy is, or you didn't know what the change was that was taking place. I mean, it could be fatal. It could be a big deal if that kind of change is going on and you don't know, it, know about it. Lawrence of Arabia, real guy, T.E. Lawrence, 1917, um, was um, you know, in the, in the Arabian area, and um, he led a band of people, and they overtook and conquered this city called Akba. Now, you may have heard of Akba. It's, it's uh, on, the, on the Red Sea. It's the very south end of Jordan. 
And at the time, it was considered impregnable. The, the Turks, the Ottomans held it at the time. And they had these gigantic naval guns. They were sitting on the hills behind the city, pointed out to sea, big and stronger than the guns that could be on ships. And as a ship would approach, it, they could get pulverized by these guns before they could approach. So, so the, the, the Turks believed that the city was impregnable. And um, surrounding the city was this big, giant, terrible, inhospitable, dry, huge desert. No one's going to come and attack from the north, they believed. And they thought they were fine. Well, Lawrence of Arabia, you can go watch the movie if you want. I'm not testifying about the, uh, the, 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 the veracity of the movie. But the history is correct. He led a group of guys, and they went around, and they came in from behind. And without knowing it, they had overtaken the city. The Turks were defeated there. And they made two mistakes. They didn't know who their enemy was, and they didn't have the right weapons. You think back in our country to September 10th, 2001, there wasn't any conversation in the public arena about a war on terror. We weren't talking about it. People weren't thinking about it. Uh, You had never heard the words, unless you were in the intelligence capacity of argument, you had never heard the words Al-Qaeda before. You didn't know about it. Probably the first time you ever heard the words was, President Bush said the words Al-Qaeda when he told you know, the country what had happened. But you, you didn't, we didn't think about it. This idea of terrorism happening within our borders was a fantasy. Yeah, there had been a few things, but nah, it's not going to happen here. September 11th, of course, the next day, everything changed, and this new enemy surfaced. And ever since then, we've been catching up with the fact that there are people out there who do not like us, And they really want to destroy us. They really want to destroy who we are. And in this series um, that we're going to be in for a while, it's it's just security and troubled times. Okay, it's not what you think. I'm not going to come here every week and give you a briefing on world security. We'll, We'll touch on a few things. We'll talk about some of those things because we need to know what's going on, but that's not what this is. And, and, and though our, our, our country is in danger of those kinds of things, we will touch on those things. But we have a greater enemy than that. You know, yes, our homeland is under attack, but our homes are under attack. Your family is under attack. Your, your, your children are under attack. Your marriages, your ch- churches are under attack. And your souls are under attack. Paul the Apostle um, gave us a battle briefing about this topic. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, For our struggle is not against a human opponent, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers in the darkness around us. The real enemy, Paul is telling us here, is a host of demonic beings, including the devil himself. Now, when the average person hears this, this concept or this verse, their typical res- response is, ah, oh, come on. It's not real. It's, it's, it's not real. You know, that's not a real problem. Today, in the, in the United States, we have our own Department of Homeland Security. There's 229,000 employees. That's a lot. That's more than this group. That's a big group, right? Right? Big, a lot of people. And the idea for them is to assess and respond to threats that would come against 
um, our, 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 our land. And, and initially, they came up with this color-coded system. You probably remember to, that would describe different levels of threats. Okay, so this was immediately what they came up with within a year or so um, after all that happened. And you probably remember seeing this, this is no longer what we use. Um, if you had, didn't know that, I'm going to bring you up to speed on that. But um, they, they created this. They've since that time come up with a new system. And this new system is replaced with what's called the National Terrorism Advisory System. Okay, there's three types of advisories. It used to be four colors. Now it's three types of advisories, and um, the one, the first level, is called a bulletin. It describes developments. Uh, it says of, of general general trends regarding terror regarding threats of terrorism. Second, if it goes up, it's called an elevated alert. It talks about credible terrorism threats, and then the top level is called an imminent alert, alert. credible, specific, and impending terrorism threats against the United States. Now, the current bulletin, which is, this is current right this moment. You can't, it's kind of hard for you to read back there, but you could read it if you want to. You can get online. This is a current bulletin. In fact, the upper right-hand corner says, this is in effect until May 8th, I think, something like that. So May 9th, yeah. So um, this is the current bulletin. And if you travel outside the U.S. borders, the threat goes up. The State Department issues a map, and they go into detail country by country. And I didn't put a legend up there, but you can guess that yellow is worse than white, and yellow with stripes is worse than yellow, and then you got an amber color, an orange, and it eventually gets red. And those places are don't-go-there kind of places. And um, so, uh, in fact, you might also have known, if you pay attention to the news and you catch these kinds of things, just last Wednesday... Our government raised um, the threat level in five different states in Mexico to red, to that red level. Okay, here's a quick geography on Mexico. Mexico has 31 states. You know, we have 50, right? They got 31 states, and of those 31, five, uh, we'll get, all of the states are at their second level, which is alert. You have to be careful when you go because of this, that, the other thing. Uh, uh, all of them. Five are the highest level. Don't go there. They're in the same category, according to our government, as Syria, Iran, Yemen, Somalia. Okay, Five of them are at that category. Eleven are in the next step down. Like, don't go there unless you have to. And if you go, you better really, really, really be careful. I'm kind of summarizing. Okay, So half of the states in the country right next door to us are at elevated levels. There, it gets more dangerous if you leave here. I mean, yesterday in Hawaii, if you caught this on the news, at about 8.07, 11.07 our time yesterday morning, the state of Hawaii put out an uh, alert, and it went over your TV and was Twittered and on radio stations. It was that action alert. The sirens that they started up a couple months back, the nuclear attack air raid sirens that they've been testing, those went off, and for... Um, the people in the state of Hawaii, they got an alert that said, there's an <coughs> incoming ballistic missile. This is not a drill. And it took 38 minutes for the official notice, oops, not real, to come out. Now, there were some notices that came out in that intervening time. But for the people who got the initial, your government is telling you, get in your basement because a bomb is on its way. And, of course, the implication is North Korea. That was 38 minutes. Wow. It's unprecedented. The closest thing we've had to that 
is the movie War Games, right? <laughs> Who's old enough to remember that movie? You know, you know. Shall we play a game? You know that movie? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't know where that came from. Somewhere else. What would the threat level be if we were dealing with spiritual issues? It, 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 it could be in the severe zone. It, it could be in the imminent alert zone, especially for some of us. So we're going to get into scripture today, um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to start out in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, which if you look at it, is a pretty odd place to start. In fact, you look at it, it's a big long list of names. It's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to read much of it. And um, in fact, I wouldn't recommend it for easy reading. It'd be a great one to read if you're trying to go to sleep at night. Um, to us, it was, it's just this list of names. These, it's an obituary now. But to David, this was a very, very important list of names because this is basically a list of David's mighty men. He was being chased around by King Saul who's trying to kill him because the Lord had called for David to become king and uh, they were the guys that were standing in the gap and were going to help him out. And uh, it was best troops helped him out. So we're going to be um, starting in, uh, right in verse one. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones. Do you catch that? You think Michael Jordan is an athletic stud? These guys could pitch right-handed or left-handed. Hurling stones, as you do that, you've got to hit the mark it's, or you die in battle, right? Okay, I just thought that was pretty cool. Okay, they're both right and left-hand, ambidextrous throwers, not batting, but throwing. Hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow, they were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Pretty special group of guys that he's got standing up for him. Verse, verse 8. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. Verse 23. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. Verse 30. Moving down here. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800. Mighty men of valor, famous men through their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. 32. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. I mean, the very first time that I can remember reading this passage... I mean, a long time ago. I, this has been a very special passage to me. Verse 32 reached up and grabbed me by the throat and has never let go. I mean, it's like it says to me, hey, Terry, stay right here and notice me for a reason. It's like, you know, because there are some lessons that we should learn here. And, and um, you know, the, the, this, we're going to launch this series with verse 32 to become sons and daughters of Issachar ourselves. I mean, how do you get discernment? How do you get discernment with direction, with conviction in troubled times like now? How do you get that? How do you think clearly? How do you live with faith and peace in times such as ours? Okay, so in these passages, we're going to find three positive commands, three things to do in threatening times. And I'm not going to spend, I'm going to spend time on this over the next several weeks, but Number one, we're going to realize. We want to realize our position. We realize where we are. Number two, we're going to recognize, understand, recognize the perils that are around us. 
And number three, we're going to respond. Knowing what those perils are, we're going to do something about it. We're going to respond. So let's put that passage back up and leave it up there for a couple of minutes while we talk about the sons of Issachar. I think these were just ordinary guys. Regular, you know, ordinary people who made themselves available at an extraordinary time for an extraordinary purpose. They were ordinary people used by God. And notice that the scripture only mentions a couple hundred. You know, it's a very small group. A little bit more than, than we've got here today. Not a lot. And, um, you know, not, not the 20,800 from Ephraim, not the 18,000 from, from, from Manasseh. It's a much smaller group, but so important because they understood their times and they knew what Israel ought to do. Just a few regular folk with some insight and some direction. We need more sons and daughters of Issachar. The world needs more sons and daughters of it. The church needs more people who know what's going on around them and what to do about it. And, and it can be anybody. It can be anybody who dares to trust the Lord with insight and direction. And he will. He will. There's, um, there's a Chinese proverb about a group of elderly Chinese guys who were close friends, and they had this, uh, this tradition. They, they would meet together periodically, and they'd drink tea and share great wisdom with each other and you know, take turns hosting this get-together. And the goal was not only to you know, share wisdom with each other, but to expose each other to the most rare and exotic and expensive tea. Okay, So there's kind of a little bit of a hostess showmanship thing kind of going on too, okay, with these, these guys. And when it fell the turn of the, the most venerated, you know, and respected gentleman in this group, he did it, his, 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 he did it up with ceremony. I mean, he, he brought in a, the tea in a, in, a, in a very special and expensive gold box. And he served out the tea with a gold spoon, with a lot of pomp and circumstance. I mean, he did it up. And these guys drank this tea and they commented about how exquisite it was, how wonderful, how they'd never had anything like it. <laughs> Until their host said, the tea that you have found so delightful is the very same tea that our peasants drink. No difference. His point, of course, was that all good things in life don't have to be, or they're not necessarily the rarest and the most expensive. And there's real wisdom in that. Because these sons of Issachar, they're people like you and me. They're, they're, you know, they're just ordinary, plain people, ordinary, plain folk. And they're also the sons and daughters of God, just like you and I are the sons and daughters of God. It makes you actually pretty extraordinary. And it kind of gives you an edge that other people don't have. And God's going to use anyone, you know, who will say, God, use me, who makes themselves available. Here's, here's how you can know this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. I always think that, you know, God's insulting me, calling me a fool. He's not. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things. Read on through. And the base things and the things which are despised God has chosen. Here's why. So that no flesh should glory. Ah, look what I did. God will use ordinary people who are just plain willing. The thing is that once he starts to use you, you're no longer ordinary. 
God isn't necessarily looking for a Nobel laureate or, you know, the politicians or nobility or the world-famous athlete or, you know, the statesman. He'll, he'll, he'll take anyone who says, I'm willing, Lord, and I trust you to do what you want to do. And, you know, I, and, and someone who is willing to say, I will trust you, God, with your insight. Pour it in, and I'll do something with it. Even though we're just flesh, you know, even though we can't save ourselves, we are sons and daughters of God. So we need to recognize the peril. Recognize the peril. Um, the sons of Issachar, who had understandings of the time. And, and so that's where we build. They, these guys understood exactly what they were up against. Here's what they were up against. They knew that the dangers of the time that they were living in. You know, they knew that Saul was king, and, and he was jealous and angry and vengeful. And they knew that, he, that Saul wanted to kill David. And so they were in danger if they decided to hang with David. Okay, by choosing sides, they now were objects of Saul's wrath. Okay, and Saul was the king. And they also understood, though, that David, not Saul, David was called and anointed to become king by God. So Saul's got the power, but David's got the real power, Right? Okay, so uh, even though so so even they decided to become helpers and partners with David, even though it could give them a possible death sentence. So they understood their times, and we have to also understand our times. We need to know who the real enemy is. We need to know what he's up to. We need to know what attacks, what assaults are are being built up around us. We we need to know those things because the world is confused. You know, they don't know who the real enemy is. They don't really know what's going on. And they don't know what to do about it. The world has a lot of ideas. The world sees the same problems you and I do. And I think that many of the solutions that the world comes up, they mean well. But they're aiming at the wrong enemy. They just don't know what to do about it. You do. Or at least you should. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you know, in Matthew 16, he says, you know, hey, you guys, you're pretty good. You can read the face of the sky, but you cannot, you you can't discern the times. He he said that to the leaders of the day. He says, you're you're great weather forecasters. You got that going, but you can't foresee the future or even focus on what's really going on. You really don't know, and you don't know what's happening around you. That's what Jesus said, and they should have known. So for us, you know, what are we supposed to understand about our times? You know, what are the big issues that we face? So today, today as we launch this series, today is going to be an overview of where we're going to go. So I'm giving you today an overview of where we're going to go over the next number of weeks on this topic. Um, security and troubled times and some things that we should be aware of. So, okay, I'm going to start with number one, which is the most important topic, and, I, and I'm, going to, I'm going to categorize it as eternal insecurity, I think is the most important issue. Eternal, it tops the list. Most people in our community, most people in our country, most people, most people maybe in the world don't really even care about eternity. You know, they're thinking about their kids, they're thinking about college, they're thinking about who's going to be the offensive coordinator for the Seahawks. I'm thinking about that sometimes too. <laughs> I, don't, I, think, I think about eternity. Um, you know, they think about how they're going to be safe physically, physical security. But mostly just a few people are thinking about eternity. Right? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I mean, so there's this big question mark. 
We could call many of these people the people of the question mark. Um, they call themselves agnostics. Well, you know, I just don't know. There could be a God. I just don't know. And so, okay, so eternal insecurity. Here's some statistics for you. 50%, 50% of U.S. adults, if a person is generally good or does good things, they'll earn a place in heaven. Half. Half. Half Americans believe, you know, if I just do good, I'll be fine. I'll make it. Even though they're at a loss later in the survey to define what heaven is, but I don't want to go there. That's a rabbit trail. Okay. Um, 36% of Americans say they're searching for meaning and purpose in life. Okay. Makes sense. 33% of Americans, about the same number, um, who are unchurched, most of them believe this. Satan is not real but simply a symbol of evil, not a real entity. So they, meaning you know, the world that's without Christ, they feel eternally insecure, most of them, because they are eternally insecure. They are. There, there's, there is no security outside of Christ. You know, they should feel eternally insecure. I don't want them to. But they should. They need to because they are insecure. And the danger is that some of them don't feel that way because they have a false sense of security. I'll be a good person and I'll make it. And then there are, okay, then that's in the world. Then there are those in the church who are actually eternally insecure. You know, they're insecure about their faith, their relationship with God, their, their salvation. You know, I know I was saved. I, at least I know I was saved. I, I don't feel like I'm saved right now. Did I lose my salvation? You know, is it under the rug? Did, where did my salvation go? And, and many times, the, the, the person that, that, that believes that way or feels that way, you'll see they need to get saved over and over and over because I haven't done all of the things I have to do to be a good person. Eternally insecure. There was a, um, um, the, the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptists of Kentucky did a survey within their own area and um, they came up with a, a belief, 64% of, their, of the people that were members in, in, in their group, this. We need to continually work towards salvation or risk losing it. When the leadership of the Baptist denomination there in Kentucky got that result from their survey, they concluded this. They said, um, they've not, we've not done a good job of teaching the basic key doctrines of faith. They're right. They haven't done a good job of teaching because it's not the good works that save you. So in the world, eternal insecurity, you know, or a false sense of security, those two things are rampant. And even among Christians, there's some insecurity, eternal insecurity, not knowing where we stand with God. And that's tragic because the Apostle John said there should be certainty. 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. No, you don't have to doubt that you may know you have eternal life. You need to know that you're secure in Christ. Okay, second, the second area after eternal insecurity that we'll be talking about is the family. Not just um, eternal insecurity, which is, if that's not bad enough, but security for your family. You know? and, and we shoulder some responsibilities for this. I mean, you, know, you don't need me to tell you that your family is under attack. Has been for some time. But I, my concern, I was going to use the word fear, but I'm not supposed to be fearful. So, but I, my concern is that 
Some of us are caving into the pressure. You know, I don't mean you specifically. The Holy Spirit maybe talked to you about that. I'm not pointing any fingers, but you know, here's what I mean by that. Here we are culturally worried about like things like border security. You know, who's crawling over the fence? Who's getting in? Who's going under? Should we put one up? You know, those are viable discussions for somebody somewhere to have. I'm I'm not taking a position. Don't get me wrong. I, I get that that's important. But here we are focused on fences, physical fences. And we're really not concerned enough about the real home land security. You know, our homes, our families, our marriages. Those need more attention than the border. <laughs> they do. Okay, so there's some statements from, okay, James, a guy named James Q. Wilson, who's the social scientist. He's very widely respected and often quoted. Here's something he said. We are witnessing a profound, worldwide, long-term change in the family that's likely to continue for a long time. Another guy, Glenn Stanton, who is a social research analyst, says, the scale of marital breakdown in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent. Okay, no historical precedent. What that means is he searched back through cultures going as far back as he can find it, and he can't find any time, anywhere, any civilization that's doing what we are doing today. Unprecedented. He says, of all the social problems facing American civilization, the decline of marriage and the breakup of the family is unquestionably our most pressing problem. It's the common denominator driving other social ills. And our culture, our culture tries to pretend that that's not really a problem. And our culture can't even agree what the de- on the definition of what a family is. Okay? Instead of addressing the problem, let's just relabel this to something and pretend that there isn't a problem. I mean, that's kind of where our culture has been for a while now. By the way, I'm part of the culture. I, it's not my, I didn't think that one up. But I'm just saying it's part of our culture. It's, who, who, it's our culture, Right? Our culture, and and um, I mean, I mean, I we can't even agree on this definition of a family. It's like everybody's so skittish about saying what it is because we're afraid of offending someone. So we try to include everybody, which is impossible. It used to be that a family was four point three, or a husband, a wife, two children, and a dog, or whatever it was. I mean, it used to be if you said the word family, you knew what it meant: a mom, a dad, and kids, whatever. And I realize that it comes in different shapes and those kinds of things. That's not my point. But, but we, we no longer even have a definition of boy and girl in our culture. <laughs> I have one. You may have one. But our culture doesn't have a definition. And even if you define it, it's subject to change later. Right? Just go to Target. Use any restroom you want. <laughs> Did I just step on some toes here? Okay, Carl Zimmerman, um, who was this sociologist historian, and he wrote this book in 1947, and it's a, it's a pretty famous book now. It's called Family and Civilization. And what he did was he studied civilizations going back, um, and um, he noticed something about declining civilizations. There's lots of declining civilizations that don't exist anymore, right? And he started looking at what were the characteristics of declining civilizations and looking for parallels. And um, he found a parallel between a declining civilization and declining families. Okay? And here are, some of the, here are some of the things that he said are endemic 
Um, in any declining civilization, endemic means part of. You'll see it constantly, okay? So things that w- once established, even that's going to change. Okay, marriage loses its sacredness, frequently broken by divorce. Traditional meaning of marriage is lost. Feminine movements abound with a corresponding dismissal of maternal responsibility. This is his study, don't get mad at me. Just telling you what he's found from declining civilizations. An increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. A growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. An increased interest and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. Do you realize that some of the things that today are social controversies are con- and are now considered normal behaviors as recently as a couple of decades ago, were described in the DSM by psychologists as perversions, as mental illnesses. Today, they're normal, and you're supposed to root for it. We have a declining civilization. A refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibility. This is a wake-up call from 1947. 1947, that's when this was written. And if you just watch, you're seeing everything on that list ramping up in our culture. Okay. Security and trouble times. Third on the list after families is cultural conformity. You know, we're, we're believers in the kingdom. We're supposed to live and be different than the culture around us, right? You suppose this is where you go, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't do what the world does. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, God is saying, but let me shape you with my word. Let me shape you with my word. How are we doing in that department? As a church or as people, group of believers. You know, people can spend money $1,000 more than that. Uh, this is me on a home security system, right? I mean, you can do that. You can, you can get all this really cool hardware if you want to. You can spend a lot of money and lights can go on and off and bells can whistles and calls the cops and if a door opens or a window opens, you know, the alarms go off, the neighbor's dogs bark, neighbors are mad at you because you didn't do something right. <laughs> that happened on our house. We were in Wyoming and the alarm started going off. We didn't hear about it till a couple of days from our neighbor that the alarm went like half a day. <laughs> but to save money, I disconnected it from the cops, so it just made noise. I don't know why it went off, because nothing happened. But anyway, okay, that's completely... I've just kind of blown up my chain here. Anyway, those, you know, that's, we spend all this money to protect our homes and our, 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 ourselves, to protect our stuff. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Protect your stuff. Lock your door. Do that kind of stuff. I mean, it makes sense. But here's, what I, here's my point. You, you have these holes in your house. You have these little holes. And they're in your house. And they go through your walls. And they're put there by your permission. <laughs> and through these little holes travel something. I'm just going to call the something soul thieves. Okay? <laughs> I didn't think that up. Somebody else, another pastor did, and I'm thinking, I wish, oh, that was clever. I like that idea. Anyway, so, the, and, and these soul thieves go in and out of those little holes in your house, and they steal your souls. 
know you're laughing at me going, <laughs> Terry, you, you're nuts. Okay. I mean, and all of that that's going through those holes is being pumped into there. You know, through those little holes go your, you probably have figured this out, your cable TV and your internet connections, right? And you pay these companies to pump into your home values and ideas and humor and images. And all of that stuff is being pumped towards your children and um, you. And some of that stuff is stealing your soul and theirs. You know, it's... um, According to, according to the, the Barna Group, which does a lot of surveys, and I'm going to give you some more information from them, Christians spend seven times as much money on entertainment as they do on spiritual activities. Okay? Okay. All right. So I think, though, that if we absorb that enough, it starts to show. Here are some statistics. Th- one-third of born-again Christians, one-third of born-again Christians say that abortion is morally acceptable. Mary went to visit Elizabeth. Jesus was in the womb. Elizabeth was more pregnant than Mary, not as in she was more advanced in her pregnancy. They were both pregnant. Scripture says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumped. That's not a tissue. There was a soul in there. Anyway, I don't want to, boy, that's a, I can go down there. I got passion about that, if you can tell. I love children, and um, I hope you do too. And this is not meant to condemn anyone. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But a third of born-again Christians say it's morally okay. 59% of people in this study, 59% of people who, were, who are very active in their church, this is across all kinds of, kind of denominations in our country, okay? 59% of very active are currently or previously lived with another person in an unwed relationship. 59%. And, and many of those little soul thieves that go running in and out of those little cables are connected to the pornography industry. Porno, porn industry in the United States last year, 14 billion plus revenues in our state. Okay, according to um, a study by Harvard Law, that's more revenue than the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball combined. That's in the United States. In the world, it's 90-some billion. It's, it's a pile of money. In, in the United States, the amount of money spent on pornography in the United States is more money than the tickets spent, the, the, the movie tickets, plus every performing arts combined in our country. <laughs> And some of you are watching it and you need to stop because it's eroding at your soul and it's eroding your family. Okay, fourth topic. Fourth one for um, security in troubled times is spiritual animosity. You know, we're pretty comfortable in here among people who think similarly, but outside these walls, there is an aggressive, vocal group of people that are becoming more aggressive and more vocal every day. Persecution in the world is worse than it has ever been. There is more persecution when you measure it in terms of persecuted nations. There's more persecution going on in this century than in all previous centuries combined. But that's not our topic. Our topic right now is the United States of America. Here, right here in the United States of America, books like these, The God Delusion, 
written by a guy named Dawkins. God is not great. Films like The Golden Compass or The Da Vinci Code are engineered to dismantle your faith in God, especially in Jesus Christ. You might say, hey, um, I can handle it. I realize that Tom Hanks is a great actor. <laughs> you know, he is. And I love watching his, his films. But the premise of the movie is an assault on the deity and on the word of God. And it's an assault on Christ. And it just becomes this, and I, I can tell you as a pastor, when the Da Vinci Code came out, how many appointments and meetings and ministry times I had with people who were faith-filled Christians whose faith became really wobbly after watching a stupid movie that was engineered to make their, make their legs wobble. And I wonder how many people their legs buckled or never stood up because of that. It's engineered. If you remember back to um, um, this animosity towards Christians, if you remember back to 9-11... When that happened, within days, the press was blaming, and you heard the phrase radical um, Islam, fundament, radical fundamental Islam. You remember hearing that? That kind of went out of vogue for a while um, in the previous administration. We, the, you didn't hear that very, off, very often. And, um, it, but back then, it was in its beginning stages. You'd hear, you know, these fundamentalists attacking our city. They would use the word fundamentalism. Fundamental is Islam, fundamental. And, and these, these fundamental people who believe in their book... I remember hearing that phrase. Maybe you can remember that too. Fundamental, you heard that at the time, and I thought at the time, okay, the day's coming where we are going to get, we, believers who believe in this, the word of God, our book, we're going to get tossed into that category. (laughs) Fundamentals, you know, eventually some, some fundamentalist, anything is evil. Well, here we are, more understanding of the times. According to... These, the Barna, Barna does great research. They're scientifically they do a great job. A more, majority of Americans believe you are a religious extremist if, okay, if you're a religious extremist. This is a majority of Americans. If you protest government policies that conflict with your religious views. You're an extremist if you demonstrate outside of an organization you consider immoral. You are a... Um, Religious extremists, if you refuse to serve a customer whose lifestyle conflicts with your beliefs, you're an extremist. Okay, that's the majority. Let's look at what, the, what many, but a minority, less than 50%, but still a lot of Americans believe. You are a religious extremist if you read the Bible in public, you attend services, that's you, <laughs> or if you donate money to a church. I hope that's all of you. <laughs> I hope you're all extremists. <laughs> I mean, here's, it gives, gets worse. A majority of atheists and agnostics, when you lump them together, a majority of them believe with or agree with the following statement. Radical Christianity, remember that's who you are, is as threatening to America as radical Islam. Do you know what that means? That means if you dare to believe that this book is real and you live by it, you are suspect. Spiritual animosity is here. It really is here, and it's growing. The typical demographic of an atheist is it's a young, it's a he, but barely. It used to be almost all, almost all men, and women are catching up. They're now up, up around the 40 percentile. It's, and it's not because men are dropping off. It's because there are more women who are, who are atheists. atheists. But the demographic today, if it was a person, would be a guy, 
uh, young, educated, and vocal. And my question is, you know, why is it the appropriate thing for Christians to just not be vocal? Why is it that we just got to, thank you, may I have another, hit me again, kind of a, you know, well, I, I, we don't want to say that Jesus is the only way because it'll offend somebody. Everybody seems to be okay about being vocal today. You know, the Islamic community is okay about being vocal. The homosexual community is okay about being vocal. The, the atheist community, I mean, there's all these communities. Why can't Christians just say, hey, you know, this is what I believe. It's what I believe, and I, I'm not going to change. But God can change you because he loves you. Why can't we say that? Why can't we? And just not back down. It's okay to stand for Christ. It really is. Okay, so finally, as we're going through these categories one by one, the last one, um, international instability. Okay? There really are people out there who want to destroy us. And um, what do we do when we hear about wars and rumors of wars? A phrase taken from, lifted a quote from what Jesus said. He said in the last days, you'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. Right? Like yesterday in Hawaii. You know, what do we make of all that? How do we find peace and, and, and stability and security when all of this stuff is going on? I mean, what about Islam? Is, is there an agenda or not? And, and what are Christians supposed to know about that? And how do we, with, righteous, with a righteous and, and right heart, how do we respond to that? Because we need to know that. About 10 years ago, after 9-11, but you know, in, as people were trying to figure out all this out, I watched as the nation of Great Britain was trying to come up with their own approach to dealing with terrorism. And it's going on there too. They just didn't have the Twin Towers thing. They got their own stuff. People driving in, you know. And um, they, their government in 2007 decided to banish using the term war on terror because it's too discriminating. It's, um, it, we don't want to nail down a certain group of people. We don't want to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I, even though they've got these terrorist attacks going on, I'm thinking, okay, I get what they're trying to do. But toning down the rhetoric won't stop it. It won't. Amen. It's not going to make it go away. So you combine all of these trends that we're going to talk about, cultural conformity, spiritual animosity, international instability, and you get this constant and gradual erosion of our culture. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, it's erosion. You know, everybody, everybody knows that today's ocean view can become tomorrow's ocean, right? That's what erosion does, right? And that's going on right now in our culture. So remember back earlier I said there were three things to do in threatening times. Okay, realize our position. We're just these ordinary people being enlisted by God to do an extraordinary task. Sons and daughters of God. Second thing is we're going to recognize the perils around us. You know, things are going on. We get it. We just want to get the picture and be informed. And number three, respond. We're going to do something. We don't want to just say, well, yeah, I've been doing a lot of study and, you know, there's bad stuff out there. We ha- the question is, what are we going to do about it? We've got to respond to it. And that's the last part of knowing what Israel ought to do. So here's this group of a couple hundred guys who have vision and perspective and insight and, and some perception that these things that God is putting into them and they craft a strategy and it's based on vision it's based on what they see and it's based on vision and that's what I hope we can come up with as we go through this series over the next time this series is not about scaring you and this series is not about me whomping you up into some sort of an activist group that is not me and that's not what I'm asking of you 
by the way, I do not see the church to be a political action committee. It's never my heart. My role here is not to tell you what to do or be politically. My heart here is to teach what the Word of God says and trust the Holy Spirit. The minute you think, and every once in a while I'll have someone say to me, hey, that was a little political and I will fix it. But my, my agenda, I don't have that kind of an agenda here. I have preferences just like you do. And I vote a certain way and I have beliefs and da 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 But that's not what this is for. Okay? Okay. <laughs> I just want to put you at rest because I know sometimes when I talk about world conditions and I talk about things going on in the government, someone will read into them, into that, that I'm trying to push you somewhere. And I'm trying to teach the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit push wherever the Holy Spirit will push. So, I think we need to be informed and we need to be equipped and engaged. Um, you know, and, and, and being informed is, I'm going to ask this of you. Read. <laughs> Read. Read what's going on. Don't just go for the entertainment. Spend some time reading. And especially read God's Word. Especially read God's Word. Even though it was written a long, long time ago, it will help you understand what you read in the paper. Do they still have papers? Yes, they do. Be equipped. You know, I mean, it's more about learning about how more than... It's not just learning how to protect ourselves, but to be equipped for how it is that we're going to promote Christ too as we do this. I mean, we don't want to just stop with, well, yeah, I know how to protect my family. We're all bunkered up. (laughs) Because the last thing I want to come out of this is a fortress mentality. That is not what we want. That is not what we're looking for. Um, Somehow in the midst of this, we have to learn how to promote Christ and to creatively and with love stick in the gospel message and then be engaged. Every pastor that I know at some point, point has quoted Edmund Burke and Winston Churchill. Lots of people have quoted Edmund Burke. He said this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good people, men and women, to do nothing. I think it's time that it's important for the people of God to be in the game here. And maybe you are really, really, really good at what you do in the marketplace. Maybe you are really, really, really good in the community, and I'm really glad about that. But as we go through this series, I'm going to ask you to evaluate within your own soul, am I making an eternal impact on other people? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for...